Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Justin the Food Entrepreneur Show. I'm Justin Bizarro. I'm your host. That's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. For anyone who's out there looking for us, you can find us on Instagram at Justin the Food Entrepreneurs. You can find me personally at Justin Bizarro. Again, that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O. And if you're looking for this show or the other shows we do, you can find us on Spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts. Just type in my last name. All four of them will show up. So, I have a very special guest with us. I've just met this gentleman. Uh, He was introduced to me through Stuart Deming of Explore Nash. Uh, We've done a podcast with him on this show. Uh, The network's growing. I like this. I like my life right now. It's really freaking incredible how all these like-minded individuals, all these entrepreneurs out there that share the same principles as me are coming into my life. And again, I'm just going to anchor this before I introduce this guest. I truly believe and live fully now i've made some mistakes in my past and gotten off the track with this and had to get back on it but principles are more important than personalities they're more important than the way we eat they're more important than the religions we choose the countries we represent and anything else at the end of the day are we growing the world around us period that is our purpose as humans it is to procreate not all of us do i mean uh we practice it but may not actually Uh, execute it but still even without that it's our job to grow the humans and the world around us that's what we've been given to do so that's what we're doing here on this show that's what we do with the other shows it's selfishly giving as much as we can spending our time doing whatever okay and at the end of the day this is meant to have impact and help other entrepreneurs in the food space okay so please share it Please give it to anyone that may be in a need or in a similar situation or is trying to figure out if they want to be a food or restaurant or business person in general in this space and food because these will help these individuals and these stories help me every episode I grow from it. It's kind of scary how fast I'm growing comparatively because I do every episode. I hear every story. I gain like 20 different like pieces of information every day and sometimes when we do five episodes or eight episodes like we're doing five today we're doing seven on wednesday i'm overwhelmed by how much knowledge i get and how i'm going to in in uh i don't know bring it into my life have it merge onto my super highway in my brain so that being said i have chad newton from nashville tennessee he's with many many different concepts he's he's quite an impressive entrepreneur he's got amazing things going he's made it from san francisco to nashville obviously everyone knows i have a lot of passion for san francisco after having a kitchen in south san francisco and union city over near oakland that did all of the kaiser permanente hospitals for over 24 years so that area is hugely important to me I'm going to introduce this concept that we're going to talk about today, or at least get to. It's the East Side Bon Me. Okay, we can, we're going to get dive into the history, and we're going to dive in the story. And I guarantee you guys, you're going to be inspired by this individual. And a lot of food entrepreneurs out there, or people striving to be restaurateurs, are going to want to get involved with him and his businesses to try to grow their business, or find a supporter and a partner that will help them do it. Because I feel it from him in my conversations. I feel that energy. So, Chad. Sorry to, to to gas you up so much, for lack of a better term, but I really believe in what you're doing, and I believe in who you are and your partners are, and so let's just dive into your story. Let's start from Little Bambino, Chad, from day one. Yeah. Where'd you grow up? Your family life, 
were there entrepreneurs in your family? Did you grow up in food? Let's really dive into the nitty gritty and, and maybe even teachers or anyone who was impactful to you during those early years. So I'm going to give you the mic. I'll ask questions as I have them, but I really, this shows about you and your story. So let, let's get started. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's an honor to be on talking with you and discussing all this and uh, happy to be here. So thank you. You're very welcome. I'm honored that you agreed and wanted to come on the show and, and dropped in last minute and be like, let's do this. And I'm like, yes, let's do it. I love it when people do that. It's my favorite part when I get the random ones that I'm unexpected for and I haven't really prepared as much. And, and uh, I work better under pressure, to be honest with you guys. I've conditioned myself that way, unfortunately. I do not light fires and then go running into burning buildings, okay? I know a lot of people do that. That's not my thing. I like to, to help individuals um, and not create fires. So anyway, um, at least intentionally. So, Chad, where'd you grow up? Where were you born? Let's let's dive right into this. Yeah, so I was born in Mountain View, California, which is obviously very different now. <laughs> Extremely different now. Um, so, yeah, Mountain View now is obviously just tech central. You got Google there. You got tons of other businesses. It's a very, very different area. It's kind of the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, well, when I grew up there, it was just kind of a suburb of the Bay Area and uh, a really cool place to grow up. Um, the big thing there was uh, Shoreline Amphitheater, which is still there now, albeit surrounded by every single uh, Google land grab there could be around it, surrounding it. So, um, And the other cool thing about Mountain View is one of the central things about it is Castro Street, where it's full of really awesome, awesome ethnic restaurants, and it always has been. And so when you grew up there, you would go out there on a Friday night, you'd go to your favorite Chinese restaurant or whatnot, and you'd get ice cream after. And then maybe you would go to Tower Records or uh, a bookstore. Yeah, a bookstore, exactly. And, um, and, and that was it. So it was actually a very cool place to kind of grow up um, and very different than it is now. But uh, yeah, that's the hometown. That's where I was kind of born and raised. It's crazy because I agree with you. Bookstores. I love bookstores. I need to physically I read know. books. I can't do it. Like I can do it over my phone and I've spent a lot of time doing it in grad school. The, everything was digital um, in 2012 to 2015 almost uh, since I was in grad school for like, God, it seems like forever, 27 months. And um seems like forever ago now. But All right. I have to physically move the pages. I have to see the accomplishment, and that's just who I am. But And bookstores are one of my favorite places because I just – I like seeing what's there, not necessarily having to search for what I want. You know, I think that's the big difference right. is you can find things that appeal to you in a bookstore that you didn't even know were there, where when you're trying to find it online, you're really actually looking for something. And so there's a big difference there for me and why I distinguish between the two. So – I mean, talk to me about your parents. Talk to me about did you play sports, high school, friends? Like, because how did you end up with a love of food? Was it because of Castro Street? Like, talk to me a little bit about that because you're obviously talented yeah. and you're an extremely great business person, um, you know, and I can tell just by who you are in the conversation with you. So talk to me a little bit about that. What, what was that like, you know, those years and, and what impacted you to do what you yeah. do now? Yeah, for sure. So my parents were both entrepreneurs um, that basically came from nothing in the from the Midwest. My dad was from Illinois. Uh, his dad was my grandpa was a Marine and worked in like steel mills. 
and his mom was a jeweler who had her own little business. Um, and then my mom on her side, she was from South Dakota and her father was a farmer um, and also worked in like some steel mills and, and manufacturing stuff as well and was uh, in the army. Um, both grandparents were um, officers in the army and both fought in the wars. Uh, so kind of like a humble background, but when my parents moved out to California, um, they were definitely entrepreneurs and very driven. Uh, my dad was an attorney and had his own practice, which was kind of like a boutique uh, practice with about seven or eight attorneys in Mountain View. And my mom was always doing a lot of different stuff, a lot of writing for local newspapers. And she also had her own public relations company. Um, so it's kind of a cool story in a way is that like, I'm not from a long line of money, but I had successful parents who kind of were, you know, again, had humble beginnings, but moved out to California and were very driven and, you know, just did good things and did cool things and, and were really good on the business side. Um, my mom was a great networker. Um, she was just great at that. My dad was really great on the business side and I learned so much from probably both of them. Um, but that's what it was, you know, that was the family growing up. And so I kind of grew up in that environment, but I, I would have to say a pretty like normal upbringing, if you will, um, played a lot of sports. Uh, you and I have you know, spoken previously about it, but I played soccer from like age three on, uh, including up to about five, six years ago when I blew out my knee completely playing adult league. I do have to say I was sitting, I was sitting on 17 goals in 10 games, but who's counting no yeah i love it Dude, i love it i love it in palo alto i was playing in the adult league and just really enjoying it um but yeah no always into sports that was a big part but i think that was actually one of the key things um in my development um and what first made me kind of understand leadership and the whole team role and being on time and and all those things it was a, con a great combination of my parents but also my soccer coach, who's one of my mentors, um, his name is Jim McGurk, and he leads a legendary soccer program at Mountain View High School, um, and they're still crushing it to this day. Um, his program there is just, it's top notch. He does a great job. I had the opportunity a few years ago to go be his assistant coach, and I coached under him. Uh, but I would, I, I look back to, you know, to some of those you know, formative years, like in high school, uh, I was definitely kind of a fun, popular kid, probably partied a little too much, probably, you know, was definitely into the, uh, the whole social side, but also I was very into the whole sports side. And through that, I think I really learned about being punctual and being early and, you know, respecting everyone else around you and, and all those things. So I think it was a really great combination of growing up in that environment. Um, and so really, really great folks I was able to, uh, you know, be a part of at an early age and, and, and through my kind of formative years into college or high school and then college. Um, so, yeah, so that was, that was a big piece of it. I love this because, I mean, I have a similar story. I mean, I was probably, well, I was 20 something when it first happened, but by the time I quit soccer and did the surgery, I was uh, 33 years old. But I was playing adult league, and I slid tackle, and someone landed on my sh my arm, and my body kept going, and my arm stayed in place, and I actually tore three rotator cuffs, a bicep, and my uh, pectoral muscle. 
and uh, my shoulder would literally like I'd almost strap it to my body during soccer because no one would do the surgery. It was too complicated. They were going to screw the my sh- my arm to my body and it wouldn't move. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'll just like grip it to my body however I can so it doesn't dislocate playing soccer. It's still dislocated all the time. Extremely painful. And um, eventually I found someone through an act. I had a weird incident happen in New York City, ended up in an NYU hospital. And the doctor there was doing experimental surgery with, uh, you know, uh, 3D printed calcium screws uh, that would turn into bone, uh, cadaver parts and, and cow parts and, and came went in and rebuilt my shoulder, uh-huh. basically. And, and the parts. And wow. I was introduced to CrossFit fully through that and, and got a change to my trajectory. And CrossFit is like soccer, but I don't need to worry about falling apart and I can still be competitive. I feel like in a safe zone, uh, for lack of a better term. I know people don't think so uh, because you're throwing hundreds of pounds of weight over you that's your choice uh, if you stay within what's recommended and work your way slowly generally you will not get injured in my experience uh, at least the way I did in soccer because of the impact the bouncing off the ground the the knees the hips the feet the toes the broken bones my gosh how many I broke my nose I don't even know how many times it's pretty big so it leads but that's part of the journey so um let's yeah. talk about this I mean you mentioned a little bit punctuality and discipline but what did sports teach you about teamwork and achievement? Well, I think uh, I always just gravitated. I was a natural leader. I wasn't the team captain or anything, um, but I was actually, you know, always the one that was kind of organizing everything and keeping everyone else on track and always had a voice. Um, but I also learned that, yeah, achievement is great and, you know, working at something until it's finished and you get the job done. Um, but also learned a lot about failure that way too. Right. Um, so I think they kind of go hand in hand, but really kind of just persevering into, you know, working at something until you get that job done and you get it finished and it is what it is and you're done. And that's such a satisfying experience, you know? Um, but also, you know, the whole failure side of how you deal with that and what that looks like. And, you know, uh, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Right. And I truly believe in that. So all the things you can learn with all the failures are, are definitely positive pieces for the future. So that's what I learned in that kind of team setting is, uh, I think I started and I started showing myself that I was a natural leader, um, and really want to kind of go that route in life. And then as I started working, I just naturally found myself in management positions and working towards that. And, you know, trying to lead by example. And that always just kind of put me in, in a position to be um, promoted to that next level. Um, and so I think sports is such a great base for a lot of people. I think it really gives a lot back of uh, all the things you experience and all the things you learn through it. And you can apply them in, in everyday life and, and specifically in business as well. So how food, how do you go from your background, your parents are not in food, well, at least I don't think so in, in any way, shape, or form. You know, for me, my father was in food, and I grew up on a farm, so it's like this weird natural progression of trying to figure it out. Maybe I didn't follow some of the things I should have followed or my dreams entirely uh, because of that, because I got into that rut, uh, but I'm not anymore now. I'm very much more well-rounded. Talk to me a little bit, but like, how did you get from from there into food? Where did the food part come into this journey of yours? Yeah, sure. No, I get asked this question quite a bit, and it's always a funny answer. I was a hungry kid. 
<laughs> I was always hanging around when my parents were cooking and you know, my parents did cook a lot at home and we did go out to, you know, dinners on Castro street and all the different ethnic places and all that. But I really just have this fond memory of hanging out in the kitchen with my mom when she was cooking and just kind of always being around and always hungry and always tasting stuff. And, um, you know, I think that's kind of what drove me. I was just a hungry, hungry kid and, uh, I love to eat. And, uh, I think it all culminated, you know, together and kind of started going that direction. Um, uh, I also, um, at that age or a little bit later after, you know, in like the high school and college years is kind of when the food network kind of came out. And so I, I also remember growing up and watching a lot of, you know, PBS and like, you know, all the cooking shows there and great chefs of the world and all that stuff. And I was just always interested in it. And I don't, I don't know why, you know, I think it was more like it started that I was hungry. It was more that I love to eat. Um, things smelt good to me. Things tasted great. So it's just something that like really hit home. Um, yeah, my parents definitely weren't in the restaurant business. They weren't butchers. They weren't, you know, food executives, but just that time of eating with the family and eating at home and being around and watching all that, I think is what really kind of drove me to do that. And then again, once I, you know, one of my first jobs was at Domino's pizza when I was like 15 years old. And I remember at the time, my first job before that was at my dad's law firm and I was a file clerk. Um, and I just kind of went around the office and organized things and filed things and did was kind of a gopher as well. So anything they needed, uh, I would just kind of help out and take care of. And that was my first job. And then the second job was Domino's Pizza. And I remember just doing really, really well. Um, and that, you know, that's a, a fun example of kind of like a first entrepreneurial moment was that uh, I, I can't remember if I wasn't old enough to drive yet or I just didn't have my own car. I can't remember exact scenario. But I remember doing so well at, at this little Domino's Pizza in my hometown that uh, one of the managers, I think he was running deliveries for the night. And he just didn't want to do it anymore. And he asked me and I said, yeah, let's do it. And so I just started delivering pizzas. And I think I can't remember if I used his car or my own car. There was something like I probably shouldn't have been doing deliveries, but I just started doing them. And I was getting tips and going like, this is cool. And, you know, I was always making fun stuff at Domino's too. Like I would make my own pizza and just like, you know, take it sideways and just do something really cool and interesting. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. I was, I think I was kind of a food, food entrepreneur very early on and some of those you know instances or experiences are what kept uh, driving it forward it's interesting that you talk about that because well and my and while i had food and fruit stands and mowed lawns and got in the food business i weirdly um over the last about year have weirdly started stacking skills that i didn't have one is like donuts two is like baked goods like we just didn't we bought in our baked stuff all over the country and and we made everything else from scratch all of our food for the hospitals and the grocery stores and the direct-to-consumer meals and the food trucks and and restaurants and so on and so forth uh the big box stores and so one of the things that i find is that and and i did pizza as well is that i just find pizza and the dough and and the rising and the proofing like just totally a whole new animal and these living organisms and i can't tell you how even with 20 
five years of food experience and being a food entrepreneur, okay, in my own businesses and growing up on a farm and having the fruit stands from the ages of 16 to 20 that I also overlap there um, and four of them in the D.C. area. It's interesting to me how much growth and understanding happens in food by doing pizza. I honestly, the marketing side, the advertising side, the delivery side, the sourcing side, the number of ingredients that you're tracking, the the constant trying to market and advertise new things to stay relevant, the hyper competition that takes place in pizza because it's a low cost item uh, initially and it gets high margins for lack of a better term because of, yep. of the demand and because of the options and so i can't you know that and donuts to me have been the most surprising thing in food i think i've ever seen because it's just a cool industry and those industries um have had their ups and downs um and fluctuated with with trends but at the end of the day i don't i i recommend anyone go get that experience especially in pizza go get pizza experience everyone's like what are you talking about it's just like fast food like i weirdly think everyone needs that experience just at least as a kid because it changes your perspective even if you don't do food the service you learn the customer service the discipline the consistency the the being present in your job and not being distracted all those things that lead to so much success in our lives come out of those environments. Uh, so I love that we talked about it. The other thing I want to anchor for the audiences, and I talk a lot about this on the Centurion Leadership Battalion uh, show, um, and we've done a few episodes of the pillars of leadership are the pillars of entrepreneurism, and we're relaunching those and, and trying to get through all 18, uh, now 21 of them. Uh, I think there's now 21, but we call them the E's because they, I, we've tried to make them all e- start with an E so they're easily rememberable. But the first three for everyone is education, experience, and exposure. And so while you were ga- you've gained experience in food and you, gain- and you had an education, one of the things your parents did for you is expose you to the food, to different types of food on Castro Street, to, to the food world in general, to business in entrepreneurism, there was exposure there. That's why it's important because education is only as good as our experience, but our experience in education is only as good as our exposure to the world to actually see how all those things fit into the world around us, even internationally. So exposing ourselves to international cuisine, international food, international countries, um, and the way other humans live is extremely important. Even within the United States in our own cities, we go around and we actually have the guts and the gusto to go learn and grow we can learn a lot from people who are not in our situation and again it goes back to what i always am saying to everyone it's about principles over personalities don't worry about how someone lives or what they choose for a profession or you know what kind of food they like or what kind of politics they are or if you know whatever at the end of the day it matters do we share the principles and growing the world regardless of our economic situation regardless of where we live it's about what we believe in um, and the hope that we have uh, so I just want to anchor that with everyone. And again, it is education, experience, and exposure. That's the foundation to being a great human, period. I'm sorry, it is. And um, especially done in a positive way. So, Chad, where do you go from pizza? Talk to me about where you go from Domino's in the delivery game because that's a, you know, I feel like that's a whole other experience. And, and Domino's is the best. Domino's invented the delivery game as we know it today. I know Chinese food was the first ones to deliver Chinese food and deliver food in New York City uh, in the 19, early 1900s. But 
Domino's basically changed the game by being one of the first to actually do delivery and saying, you know what, it's not about the in-store experience. We've got to make it about the delivery experience. So um, talk to me about maybe some of that. What did you learn from Domino's uh, in that regard? And then where did you go from there? Yeah, no, I think I just learned a lot about – you know, just having a job and, and doing it properly, just kind of like those same like fundamentals um, and anchors that I learned through soccer as well, just further that. Um, but again, I love food and I love, you know, kind of creating and making my own pizzas and doing that stuff. Um, I also love, you know, being able to take the next step up and get a little bit more responsibility and be able to drive some deliveries, things like that. But um, no, it was it was a great experience, and uh, just like you said, I really uh, recommend that for people as well. Do the whole fast food thing. It's a lot of systems, a lot of efficiency. Um, it's very well thought out. You're talking about years and years of people thinking this stuff through to make it so efficient and so smart and so easy uh, to be able to do. So, um, but I, so after that, I uh, went down to San Diego um, and went to San Diego State for four years. Um, at that part, I didn't know that I wanted to be kind of in the restaurant world. I was also looking a little bit at like sports management because I really love the sports side. So I did a couple of internships with some MLS uh, soccer team in San Jose and kind of bounced around that a little bit and trying to see what I was going to do. And then while I was living in San Diego, I got a job at Pizzeria Uno, uh, which was they just had like one you know branch down there or one store down there. And again, I just did really well. Um, I didn't do good at school. I was studying just like, you know, my undergrad stuff and nothing was really picking up there. I was kind of having too much fun and really enjoying the life in San Diego, which is very easy to do, um, especially at San Diego State. But uh, but yeah, I um, started working at Pizzeria Uno and the same thing. I, I kind of got recognized by the managers there and got moved up and became a certified trainer rather quickly and really kind of put a lot of effort and energy into that because Again, I was seeing success in my, you know, my my simple roles of at this at this business, and took the opportunity and really grasped it and enjoyed it, and got a lot of experience from that as well. Um, from just going from just a simple host to actually a certified trainer and going through the whole process there, uh, so that was big. And then uh, I couldn't go further at San Diego State because I didn't have the GPA to uh, get into business school or whatever next I was going to do. So at that point, I kind of decided to uh, come home and to, to San Francisco Bay Area. I enrolled at San Francisco State and concurrently started working at a really great restaurant, a very famous, well-known restaurant that's not around anymore, but had a very uh, long run and was one of you know the top five restaurants probably in the city at that point. It was called Postrio. It was owned by Wolfgang Puck, um, you know, big fancy fine dining place that was just huge had a lot of different like little revenue centers in terms of you had the full dining room it also was attached to a hotel which they did all the food for the hotel as well and there's also a really cool bar upstairs with a pizza station and, and whatnot and so concurrently i started going to san francisco state um because at that point my parents were still really pushing me to to finish my degree and it looked like i was kind of in a dead end so I can't remember kind of what came first, but I started going um, to San Francisco State uh, to do restaurant management. And um, while I was going through those classes, I actually started doing really well at school uh, because I think I found my passion, right? Um, 
So I started really excelling at that. I went from a C to a B student to a straight A plus student in all my restaurant classes and all my, my management and all that stuff. And that started going really well. And, you know, part of it was working at this little fine dining restaurant on campus. I think it was called the Vista Room. And I just remember uh, I was working at Post Trio and learning so much there. And then I was also going to school. And so when I would go to these little shifts I had to do at the Vista Room, where you kind of just bounced around, you know, that you maybe worked in the dining room one day and worked in the kitchen another day. And, um, you know, it wasn't super realistic, but it got a lot of uh, students a taste for what a restaurant was supposed to be. And I just remember going in there and just like absolutely crushing it. Like the chef loved me from day one. I was showing him all these techniques I was le- learning at Post Trio. Um, so it was kind of funny. Uh, but at that part, I kind of really started excelling. And, and when I worked at Post Trio, I started off just as a food runner in the front of the house. So I was literally dropping off food to tables, you know, carrying plates back and forth for the chefs, doing anything that the chefs needed on the line. And this is a big, busy restaurant. I'm talking about you know, 400 covers on a Friday night, the who's who of San Francisco, beautiful plates, but you're also doing the numbers too. And everything was really well sourced. A lot of energy went into it. I mean, there was like a pasta boy. We, they called it a pasta boy back then, but there's a guy that just made pasta. There was a butcher in house. There was three or four prep people that constantly worked. And then you had all the line cooks. There was a pastry chef. There was two co-executive chefs. So it was a big operation. Um, <clears throat> And so I got immersed in that, which was really cool. And that's where at one point, uh, I think I've kind of started making friends with the chefs and the cooks. They really liked me. Um, They kind of offered me to help out in between. So I would actually work during the day uh, running food. And then I would change into whites and jump in the kitchen and help with prep. And then as dinner started, I would get back and I would work the dining room in the front. Well, that led to a cook position. A cook position opened up basically it was called hot prep. Um, I made staff meal for the whole restaurant and including the hotel worker. So I was making staff meal every day for 30 to 40 people. Uh, and it had to be good. Like if you made a bad staff meal, the chefs would talk down to you and you know, you'd be belittled and you, you really understood or you learned how important it was to feed the team. Right. Um, so this was like a huge step for me to be able to get this position. Um, and uh, as I did that, I really started doing well. Uh, I would start doing like these themed family meals where uh, I would literally do like a Super Bowl thing because, you know, it would be leading up to the Super Bowl on Sunday. So I'd do like a whole Super Bowl spread. And I just remember one day one of one of our executive chefs, uh, Mitchell Rosenthal, came down and said, Chad, you make the best you make the best family meal ever. I was like, thank you, chef. And it meant so much to me. Um, but at that point, I got to play with a lot of food as well. And while I was playing with the food, I was getting little pointers and tips from all the other cooks because you're kind of cooking right alongside of them. And you're using up things that need to be used up in the restaurant. And it was such a big operation. They would actually bring in stuff for staff meal, um, you know, different things like, you know, hot dogs or burgers or whatever. So you had to kind of cook what was there given to you, but also make it interesting and you know make it fun and so i did that and i learned a lot through that and as i started working there um i graduated up to the next station was garde manger so i was working the salad station um and i wasn't doing the family meal anymore and then i started working other stations and i worked hot apps for a quick minute which was a step up from the garde manger station 
And then I started working the grill and then I started working uh, saute and becoming a saucier. And I was a saucier for a while. So I made all the sauces in the whole restaurant. And so like all the French sauces. So I learned like, again, this is all just building blocks of me learning everything. And then I got promoted to lead cook after maybe like a full year. It was not a long time. And then after two years, I got promoted to sous chef. It's probably the fastest anyone has ever been kind of promoted through that whole system. And so I was just on a, a big fast track. And what it was is I think it was just the dedication because I would just spend so much time there. I just loved everything that was happening around me. I loved the food. I loved the people. But I also loved the success that was happening. And I felt rewarded. And so I just kept going and going and going. And uh, luckily, I was able to start working on tasting menus. So they would give me the whole tasting menu and I would just develop it um as a young cook and so this all happened very quickly so within two years of me starting at postrio and starting on, in the front of the house as a food runner i became a, a a sous chef that was in charge of the restaurant's tasting menu which was just huge this is and, interesting i okay. just as a side note i've been to that i was well, I've been to it i guess it doesn't exist anymore but i had been to that restaurant like numerous times back in the day uh particularly because yeah. my executive chef and the chefs that I had in my business would always talk about that restaurant. I mean, San Francisco's got a plethora and the Bay Area a plethora right. of amazing food. But that's interesting because I do – the food there was incredible. And, and as soon as you said the name, I'm like I'm having – I actually drooled. Like I'm having like total Pavlov's yeah. dog reaction of ringing the bell on the food because I was picturing the food and then ringing it. We may have even crossed paths. I may have eaten your food. But oh, anyway, sure. keep going. I didn't. I, I yeah. interrupted. I'm sorry, but I just want to anchor that because I just the food there was so phenomenal all the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, go it ahead. Was. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And so, just a, a quick funny story, and I'll kind of wrap up this portion. Is that um, because I had moved up so quickly on the work side, I stopped going to school, and I was uh, I think like five credits short of graduating. And so when graduation time came around, my girlfriend at the time, who also went to the school, she graduated. I didn't. They, they let me walk for some weird reason. I can't remember what it was with maybe the, the thought that I would go to summer school and get my last couple of, of credits and then finish it off. There was something that was close enough that they let me walk graduation. So I did that. But I didn't get my diploma. Um, and so that kind of always hung, uh, hung over me, especially my parents a little bit. We're like, hey, we helped you go to school. We know you're doing really great in your career, which is awesome. But, you know, you didn't get your you didn't get your diploma. And so a few years later, uh, when I became an executive chef in San Francisco, um, I was doing really well. And I just thought about it. And I said, you know what? I have some friends in the in the you know, some old professors that I was still kind of connected with at the school. So I went back, went and saw some of the professors from that department. And I said, Hey, this is what I'm doing now. I'd love to support. So I was supporting them on a couple of things that they were doing now as, you know, an ex-student and, ex and an executive chef in San Francisco. Um, I went back to them and I said, hey, what can I do to get my to get my degree, to get my, get my diploma? And I can't remember. This is maybe like three or four years later, maybe even five. And they said, well, Chad, uh, what we can do is looking at your career. You've obviously done really well. We followed you. We're going to just give you the last couple of credits and call it professional, whatever it was, professional experience or professional success. And they gave me the credits and I got my diploma. So I got my diploma. In, <laughs> I fucking uh, love that. I can't yeah, tell you how uh, I love that. Yeah. So I got my bachelor of science in restaurant management 
uh, or hospitality management focus in restaurants from there. So I, I rounded the corner and, and really did it a little bit more for my parents, but also for myself, of course, because it was the right thing to do. And I just felt like I, I, I didn't need to have it on paper to do the industry because I was already doing so well in the industry, if that makes sense. I know a lot of people obviously get degrees so they can have that when they're you know, going out to look for jobs. But you also, you know, just in the hospitality world works a little bit differently. And so um, it's more about your resume and your pedigree and where you've cooked and trusted because of that versus what you have down on paper in terms of uh, degrees and uh, certificates and whatnot. So that's my great story. So that takes me kind of into my um, beginning San Francisco years of and, and finishes off the education period of my career. Yeah, and I want to anchor some things because I want to continue on this point and got that the way you described that and um, verbalized it and orated that was so phenomenal. So I think, and so many good tip, tidbits in there. I'm going to anchor a few. One is this, and we don't realize this as society, especially in our schooling, is that growth in education or doing well during the educational process, the formal part. I mean, a lot of, I'm also talking about education where we read our own books or we go out and we educate ourselves or gain education from other people through experience. But what I'm talking about is when we aren't challenged in the things that are actually interesting to us, we do not do well in school as humans, as whatever. There's these humans that want to prove themselves and they get straight A's across the board, but they generally don't end up doing much with that. Maybe they get one job and they're well-rounded in one skill. Okay, and I get it. A's matter, and we we put people to school to be good worker bees in society. It's important, but I also want to emphasize that the well-roundedness, the ability to see students that can deal with hardship and achievement and seek progress versus perfection, is a big deal. And we do not grow that in our schools. Okay, we grow this idea of perfection and good grades. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be rated and we shouldn't have a rating system and be accountable. I'm not or throw out the grade system. Not saying that. But I am saying we lack the ability to understand it's not about being a perfect student. Okay? And it's about progressing the students, getting them to learn more regardless of their grade point average, because at some point, if we challenge them in the right ways, and don't necessarily punish them in the wrong ways, there can be things that students discover that actually challenge them and they grow from. And weirdly, the harder the challenge gets, the better the grades get for these students. Okay, for the students that actually are CB, eventually A students, I'm one of them, that find their path. Okay, and it took me a while and I had a really not great GPA in undergraduate. I was trying to start a business and I was involved in the family business. I was trying to get an outside experience that I could be back into my business. I was trying to play soccer and my undergraduate grades were horrendous. I think I graduated with like a 2.2 GPA if I was lucky. Okay, the classes that matter to me, I get. And then I went to a liberal arts school and I was in art history. And I'm like, I don't understand this at all. I don't understand it. And for some reason, I just couldn't grasp it. Why? It wasn't interesting to me. It wasn't a seed that was planted into me. I just didn't get the creativity going backwards thing. I can appreciate it. I get it. But history backwards is more important to me. And when I finally did well in art history is when I learned to attach the history and the lessons of the painters and the entrepreneurs behind all of that stuff throughout the centuries to it. But it took me a while to figure that out. 
Um, so I just want to yeah. I want to um, anchor that. I also want to anchor this. When our education systems recognize that experience and exposure are as, in, as important as the education itself in getting those degrees, we will excel in this world, okay? Because when we just blanketly give education away and we don't attach it to any experience or any exposure to the world, I'm not only talking about living abroad programs. I think those are great, but they're often not getting the point across as we should. We need to go and... and and actually involve ourselves in these businesses, involve ourselves in these countries, in these culture to actually gain anything out of them. That way, when we are being education or getting our education, it's actually applicable because most of it, we don't even remember why, because we have no use for it when we're getting it weirdly. And even when I was an undergraduate, I was picking the things or excelling at the things that mattered in the businesses that I was doing at that time. And I had multiple businesses, even one personally called Millennium Bridge, you know, that I'd started on my own. And so I was really doing well in the things that applied to that. But even the business classes that I couldn't apply, I was struggling with because I could not get it through my head how it applied to life. I just couldn't. Um, and even and when I got to grad school, it was a different story because I had about 12, uh, 14 years of experience in food. And then, you know, at least. I started like mowing lawns for other people when I was five and mowing fields when I was seven for other humans. And, and my parents taught me business in that way. Um, I, I was able to apply it when I actually understood the concepts and was able to see them in real life. But if I couldn't get them into real life or the, the professor or teacher wasn't able to bridge that for me, it was hard. And honestly, we allow too many people to be teachers and professors that can't bridge those gaps for students that can't take real life situations and actually demonstrate them in a the classroom and don't live their lives from a place of vulnerability, authenticity, and going to get experience and not living fear-based where they're not passing on the fears to the students versus the growth. Okay. And I'm sorry, I'm just going to say it. That's my opinion. Everyone could be upset about it, but I would say that's my life story in a nutshell. Like I gained a lot from the professors that actually had experience in the subject matter, not just from a book, not just from gaining a PhD or doing a study. So um, sorry, I know that's going to upset some people. I'll probably get some feedback there, but that's how I feel about it, honestly, especially in food. You cannot be in food without going and being in the food, period. You've got to learn it. Yep. You can't do a recipe. You can't do inventory. You can't do shit and food without even learning how a knife skill or learning whatever. That's why I'm still stacking the little ridiculous skills like donuts and baked goods and bakery and and pizza because I need I need to learn more. I, those skills are very, 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 very important to get to add to your education, to add to your experiences and gain exposure. And so sorry, Chad, I know this is your episode and I'm talking uh, a little bit. The other thing I want to say, my last anchor is you talked about the hard knocks, the the sort of the lighthearted making fun of or are the hardship and sort of the constructive criticism that was coming back to you, the positive constructive feedback, I'll call it, uh, just for lack of a better term, even though it's not always positive. But especially in male-to-male relationships, there's this thing where we go through this and then we get approval by another male, not necessarily older than us, but someone who may have more experience, exposure, and education in the subject matter. And as a male, getting that approval, it means a shit ton in our growth and our ability to excel and live for our potential and strive for excellence over our lifetime. A lot of men try to get it from their father and they may never get it. Okay, so if we're able to give it in our food businesses to the men and the women 
in our environment in a constructive way that's positive, but also letting them know when they're actually fucking up and not sugarcoating it, pun intended, then we can we can do better as businesses. We can create a better place for the world. We can actually grow the humans beyond just the skill or the business that we're talking about. We can actually make them more well-rounded humans um, and better service to the society, okay? So... Um, and assets to the community and the world around them. So, Chad, let's go back. You you have this experience. Why do you leave this restaurant? Why do you decide to move on? Or, or what happens there that you decide it's time for me to do more? Because you do. So I know it. So I'm going to anchor one. You decided that you wanted to do more, basically, and you have. But what do you do after the restaurant experience? Sure. So uh, very happy at Postrio. Great learning experience, worked really hard there, worked with really great folks, uh, really developed, um, you know, my whole cooking and kitchen side. Uh, that was fantastic. Um, I did really well there, whereas there was a program uh, where they could send one person to Europe to, you know, stage and, and cook around and stuff. And I was given that opportunity. I was chosen, but also at the same time, I was also presented with an opportunity to go up to wine country and open a brand new restaurant in Yeltville uh, from a chef that I really, really looked up to and really loved, uh, really loved his food. And so I chose the the second choice there, which was moving up to Yeltville to open this restaurant as a sous chef. So I was kind of handpicked to do it, which was awesome. And so I went up and did that, um, opened that restaurant, learned a lot, got to live and cook in wine country, which was so incredibly beautiful and just what an experience overall. Um, it was, it was a tough situation, uh, doing that kind of high caliber opening, uh, with the chef, uh, was, was a lot. And I ended up only lasting about nine months, 10 months there and, uh, figured that I needed kind of a different direction. So I kind of, uh, left there, did a little bit of, uh, cooking on my own, uh, doing some private events and things like that through friends I made in the wine country, cook for some really cool dinners at some wineries and things like that while I was trying to look for the next thing to do. And then I met a really great kind of chef mentor um, who unfortunately passed away a little bit ago, Jan Birnbaum. Uh, and he had a project for me in Boston where I could kind of go as like a consulting chef uh, slash sous chef um, to really help out this uh, restaurant in Boston. And it was for the Kimpton group who I always really looked up to um, the hotel that Postrio was in was a Kimpton group property. So I knew of them through that and had some friends that worked for Kimpton and it was just a good move for me at the time. So I kind of uh, regrouped, went out to Boston with Jan and ended up cooking there uh, for this kind of consulting stint. We were basically just helping a, a restaurant transition. It was kind of a high profile restaurant there that lost its executive chef pretty rapidly and they wanted to change over the space as well so they just wanted to bring in some kind of uh culinary folks to really just run the restaurant keep it afloat until they kind of decide what to do and how they wanted to roll it from there so i got to be a part of that and just went in there and cooked in boston and lived in boston for like nine months um and that opened a lot of opportunities for me which was really great i started looking at jobs back in san francisco so um went back to San Francisco, got my first executive chef job 
um, which I was extremely proud of at the moment because up to that point, I had just been the sous chef and other things and never ran my own kitchen and then had the opportunity to run my own kitchen in San Francisco and did really well doing that. Got to cook for, you know, the whole review side with Michael Bauer, the, the, the food writer that used to be at the Chronicle. And, you know, the, the, obviously the game has changed uh, very much since then, but had the opportunity to really kind of be in the San Francisco culinary spotlight as my own executive chef at, you know, not my own restaurant, other people's restaurants, but really had that opportunity to do that. So um, I worked at a couple places as executive chef around San Francisco and then had the opportunity and met up with uh, a restaurant owner that I was the chef for. It was a place called Fish and Farm uh, that was really incredibly popular at the time. We did a really great job. And through that, I met one of our future business partners, um, and this was right at the time around 2009, 2010, where um, people kind of started figuring out, okay, well, the fast casual side could work well too. So this is when like chefs really first started looking at doing fast casual. And then maybe it was the uh, idea of like, hey, I got an empty PDR or private dining room that's not being used. Maybe we can just like open that for lunch and do some more revenue out of there. And we can just do a little casual, cool menu. So there's a lot of people kind of, dabbling at that or starting to dabble in that at the time and that's where i met our our partner uh for asian box uh which is a fast casual brand in california that's still around today the uh, has still has about 10 units and they're back in growth which is really cool so i co-founded that with uh, the partner his name is frank and my wife gracie uh, and it's called asian box it's a vietnamese uh, fast casual street food, build your own type of bowl type of situation, but it was in boxes. And we got to create that from the ground up and then scale it. And, and in our heyday, we had gotten up to 10 units. We had um, uh, five in uh, Los Angeles area and five in the Bay Area, which was really cool. So I got to travel a lot for that. And I got to really develop and scale this concept. And that's when I really got to learn about the business side of things. Uh, as I was a culinary director and founder for the whole company and managing the supply chain and, uh, you know, quality and consistency and traveling to all these different restaurants to make sure that everything was happening correctly as we grew. Um, so that was a really big challenge, but a really fun one. And, and, and we learned a lot through that. Um, it was very tough and a lot of pitfalls, but we learned a lot from those. And still proud to say that to this day we are um, – you know, still friends and family of Asian Box. They're still doing really well. Uh, we still retain our, our, our equity in it. And uh, we wish them the best and kind of help them on the side and anything they need. If they need, you know, cool new ideas on some food or better ways to do things, we're always there to help them out. But they have a great team and they rock it. And again, they're back in growth right now, which is super cool. They just opened... Most recently, they opened at San Francisco International Airport, which is awesome. And then they just opened up at the Asian Art Museum in San Francisco. So um, did really well through COVID where most people, you know, had a lot of pitfalls, of course, and a lot of failures. We did lose a little real estate through there. But again, back on the growth, growth path, which is really super cool. And so really proud of that kind of concept and what we built there with such great partners. So I, I've got a few questions here because I know yeah. we talked about East Side Bon Me, which we're going to get uh -huh. into definitely, at a, definitely probably in part two um, as we go into it. But 
I really want to finish off this part of the conversation because I know you went from Asian Box, you end up in Nashville, where we talked about Eastside Bon Me. Um, when yep. I'll be trying it at the end of the month when we go to sort of start filming some of the stuff for Photopia, the TV show that we're working on, and uh, yep. that you're going to be a part of it for that episode for sure, and your, your concepts, and I can't wait um, for that. And um, as we continue in Nashville, definitely over the long run. So the the thing that I want to bring back is, let's talk about this. Why, where did the, you know, Asian food affinity come from or, or passion come from because you've ended up sort of in that space not I wouldn't say holistically now I think you're expanding your horizons but how did you sort of go from where you were I don't know what the concept was in Boston maybe that exposed you more to Asian food um, which is kind of funny that we call it that considering there's so many different cultures and stuff exactly. within Asia that yeah. we blanketly say that. I hate the term, but I don't know which other way to say it. It's like saying European food and trying to describe French, right. Italian, and Spanish, and German, which are so different. So I just want to anchor that for the audience. Right. We use the word Asian. I think it's just so badly used in food, but I just use it. In, it's called Asian box, which I think is probably encompassing of Asian food um, in the food. And I'm not putting down the name. I'm just saying that as a whole, we've gone to understand it, but we, it really, um, and we use it, but I think for the audience or for anyone out there, we want to realize that there's so much accompanying Asian food, just like we would say African food or South American food. Um, there's a lot there that encompasses it that we don't understand. And um, we don't just call European food, European food. Um, although there's European cafes that sort of encompass European foods to the point of Asian box, just right. to make a point. Um, and anchor that. So tell me about Asian Box. How'd you guys come up with the concept? Where'd this passion for quote unquote Asian food come from? Um, and let's talk about that. And then how did you figure out how to scale this business? Yeah, no, perfect. Um, so backing up just before we were kind of concepting uh, Asian Box, the fast casual I referred to out of the dining room at Fish and Farm back in the day uh, was created by uh, our old partner, Frank, who owned Fish and Farm. He wanted to open up this concept called American Box. And it was mostly just like serving these really cool box lunches out of this Americana restaurant called Fish and Farm, which was Americana as you can get. It, you know, it was centered around a really great burger. And by the way, we won best burger in all of San Francisco in 2010 by seven by seven magazine. So I was named the Burger King. That was my nickname for a while. We beat out all the top restaurants and all of, I'm talking about like beat Nopa. And I can't remember all the ones, like all like the, the top restaurants that offered a burger back in the day, Zuni, all of them, like huge. We won best burger in all of San Francisco and like everything that was tasted. Um, and so, you know, we, it was kind of centered around this really cool burger and fried chicken. And it was like a little bit of Americana. Um, and so we opened up uh, the little kind of pop-up within the business called American Box. And so that's where that started. And we actually went into a museum and got a concession there with American Box for a while. And it turned into being more of a sandwich concept. But as we were concepting that, uh, we started concepting Asian Box. And that was just by the the idea that we really love to eat Asian food. And this is what's going to tie it all together because I know everyone's kind of shaking their head going like, oh yeah, you like to eat Asian food, so you're going to do it. So the big piece that ties this all together for Asian Box is my wife and partner, Chef Gracie uh, Nguyen. So she's Vietnamese. And um, as we were kind of concepting Asian Box, it was a little bit more generic 
like you were saying, maybe as uh, a little closer to what the name says. Um, but uh, she was working for Charles Fan at the time in San Francisco. And she and I actually met way back in the day at Postrio in, in 2000, 2001, and briefly crossed paths there. She was a grill cook on the dinner shift, hardcore as could be, and I was just a runner. She doesn't remember me there, and I remember her, so that's kind of like a, a funny story. Um, Isn't that the way it always goes? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, definitely not that memorable, but she was, of course, right? So uh, we'll give her the win there. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> But anyways, um, yeah, so she was working for Charles Fan in San Francisco. And for anyone that doesn't know, Charles Fan is probably the preemptive, you know, top Vietnamese chef in the whole country and has a little uh, empire in San Francisco and always had. Um, the Slanted Door is a very famous restaurant there. It's always on the best list. It's a, it's a big thing. He's a really great chef, really great guy, um, employs tons of his family. It's a very, like, Vietnamese run company uh, with all his businesses and he has this big kind of network of folks around him that cook with him and run his restaurants and again a lot of family but a lot also a lot of the network that's very loyal to him and so he has some very famous restaurants Grace he got a chance to work with him at the slanted door was kind of like his chef de cuisine there and when he opened up a little offshoot called out the door um, over in the Fillmore district uh, Gracie was an executive chef for him and opened that restaurant and so her obviously being Vietnamese, um, she was born here uh, in Houston, um, but to a huge Vietnamese family as they generally are. Um, talking about like 30 odd cousins, 30 to 40 cousins and, and stuff and uh, nine or 10 uh, aunts and uncles. So just this huge Vietnamese family. And she grew up kind of cooking with her grandma and her mom. Uh, and really learned that. But then she also went to the fine side. She went to culinary school in San Francisco. She worked at Postrio. She went and worked at Postrio Las Vegas. Then she came back and worked with Charles Fan and was running his restaurants. It was a big part of that. So she kind of had all the authentic and traditional recipes, but she also had the finer side and ran, you know, high-end kitchens. So Frank and I, when we were concepting Asian Box, kind of looked at her as like the missing piece. Like, how do we do this? Like, we we think we have a great concept, but how do we bring it to life? And it was Gracie. And so we went forward and uh, I'll still never forget this day. It was the empty space of the first Asian box in Palo Alto. And we're talking about Town and Country Shopping Center right across the street from Stanford University, right on El Camino Real there, one of the top shopping centers with little 913 square foot space that was being uh, built out. And before it was being built out and the, the space was secured, we did uh, we brought a projector and did a little uh, pitch to Gracie on the wall of the space and said, hey, we need you to come and work with us and this is what it looks like. And you know, her and I were obviously together at that point and um, almost married, but engaged. And um, she said yes. And so we've, uh, she joins us as partners and that's how we founded the restaurant. So she put in all of her kind of Vietnamese recipes and that's how it developed. Cause as we were looking and you were going to say, why, why this kind of concept then and, and how did it scale? Well, we looked around and saw that there was a lot of white space in terms of Asian fast casuals, right? You either had Panda and Pei Wei. That was about it though, but no one else was doing Vietnamese fast casuals. And we, th we thought that it was a great concept to be able to scale and again, there's a lot of white space. Uh, there's a lot of room for it. People love this kind of food, 
but no one ever did it in a format that was around $10 fast, easy, and um, super high quality chef driven. Right. So no one was doing that at the time. There's a few that kind of come and went and failed during our time, but no one has really kind of cracked the code on Vietnamese street food, fast, casual. And we did. And so that's kind of uh, how it all came together. And there's the kind of the missing link of where we got the Asian expertise. It was through Chef Crazy. And um, how was it to scale? Well, scaling it was um, was a lot of fun. There's a lot of heartache. Uh, there's a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of things learned. There's a lot of great things that happened to us. So it's a big, you know, it was, you know, 10 years of our life that we worked on this concept. And um, in the beginning, we had signed a, in a deal with an investment group to open up three locations, you know, uh, only moving forward if one location was successful. So the first one we opened was in uh, Palo Alto, a town and country shopping center, 913 square feet. That restaurant crushes. It's like one of the busiest restaurants we've ever been a part of. I mean, I'm talking about like bonkers numbers that you wouldn't even, I, I don't even want to say them. It's just insane. It's like insane. Yeah. Uh, but also I'm not a, a huge proponent of like talking about numbers and stuff of our businesses. I yeah. Mean, I feel uh, bad about that. Uh, as public, well. Publicly, you know I mean? It's just, you know, it's not my purview with them now since we're not day to day with them anymore. I wouldn't want to talk about it, but I mean, I'm talking about like huge numbers you would never kind of expect for this size business and 913 square feet. Um, but anyways, I started crushing it and uh, it was just a hit from day one. So we scaled it. The second location was in Mountain View on Castro Street. That was one of my proudest moments. I brought a restaurant and opened up a restaurant on Castro Street in Mountain View. So kind of come in full circle. Yeah, talk about going full circle. Problem. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah. And so... Then we expanded to San Francisco. That was the third store. Um, the, the business did so well. We took on some more um, investment to keep scaling, opened some stores in L.A., um, closed the store uh, in L.A., opened some more stores around the Bay. So kind of went through like the whole learning curve, but also just growing this business. And during that time, we're getting tons of awards for more of like the industry-based publications, you know, restaurant Nations Restaurant News, FastCasual.com, all of that. We were on all these really cool lists right there. Um, and then just doing really cool things and employing a lot of people and creating a lot of jobs and uh, just growing this thing. And we just learned so much through it. Uh, so that's kind of how it happened. And, you know, we kept growing it and until we got up to the 10 units. And, um, and then uh, we kind of left to go do the Nashville thing at, at, at a certain point. Um, and yeah, and they continue to do well to this day. So, so proud of them and kudos to them for keep on rocking it out. And I have a lot of questions. We're going to talk about scalability yeah. definitely on part two. Um, Chad, cause I'm, we're running out of time here, but what I just, there's so much information there. And I think the audience, like definitely we're going to have to do a couple parts here because you're one of the most, knowledgeable individuals that I have that's able to express it in a way that I think is uh, educational um, and gives people like 
a lot of knowledge through your experience um, because I have, you know, I have a ton of questions about employees and going into new markets and, and how you scaled your business yeah. and, and then what you brought with you to Nashville to, for, to form Eastside Bond Me and get into that yeah. whole thing and, and even talk more about Gracie and, and, and talk about her experience and her life story a little bit and, and getting into food because you guys merged together, which gave you the trajectory that you ended up in Nashville and in the space that you're in. Uh, the Vietnamese food space, that that Southeast Asian culture, um, and the food and spices and all that that are related to it. And so, um, for lack of a better term, um, where can they find you online? Where can they reach out to you if they're a restaurateur trying to get into business and and want to be part of your incubator program, which we'll also talk about in a few different episodes. I just want to anchor it now. How can they reach out sure. to you? How can they they find you to to gain consulting and expertise and all that stuff, um, as well as try your businesses or your food? Right. Um best way is either just through it's it's an instagram world i say these days right you can always just direct message us on instagram so at you are here hospitality so all flow together you are here hospitality um or uh east side bomb me at east side bomb me um those are probably the two biggest channels we also obviously have websites for those uh so you are here hospitality.com and eastsidebombme.com either of those you can uh, go on there to see a little bit more about us um we are in the process of kind of building out our incubator program and consulting arm of you are here hospitality there's a form you can go to the website and put through any kind of interest in the incubator program uh, or just a general interest or consulting um so those are the places to start just you are here hospitality.com and east side bondme.com and the tricky spelling for bond me is a lot of people switch the h and the n it is b-a-n-h-m-i and east side is just like any kind of east side of town so east side bond me but yeah that's where you can uh can you know just look into a little bit more of what we're doing i think uh the east side bond me page uh, on instagram is probably the most colorful and fun and then we just opened up our latest concept called Suiza Super Quesadilla. And that one's a lot of fun. And I'm sure we'll talk about this all down the line. But um, yeah, we'd love to talk more about the hospitality group and what we're doing there. And we can do that on future episodes. But that's where you can find us. Thank you, Chad. Thank you for Thank your you, time Chad. today and, and jumping on last minute like you did and, and getting this all together. And I couldn't, it was so coordinated and, and done so well. It's like we both have done this before. And, um, <laughs> and uh, so, I appreciate it. And your story is so impactful and phenomenal. I'm very, very, very much looking forward to working with you even outside the podcast and and the other ventures and and being a part of helping you guys grow and you helping me grow and and the ways we collaborate and all the ways we're we're trying to do that with one another. So I think that's huge. Um, I think you're an amazing dude with an amazing story. And your your oration skills are are top notch. Um, just saying, and so I Thank appreciate you. that time. And I always want to make sure, like, I give people something because they've given me so much on this show. And you know that I would say is you have such a strong message uh, and to give. I hope that you keep spreading it. Um, and that's why I'm obviously wanting to do like 
at least two more episodes and maybe even and continue to tell your story maybe in a fourth because we just have so many nuggets and i'm sure as we listen to these episodes there's going to be a lot of questions that come out of it so again thanks chad uh for your time thank you audience for listening in i love you guys thanks for the support Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for helping us get into 137 countries. Uh, We do not push and market our business other than Instagram and just releasing episodes and working with entrepreneurs and people on this. We just push it that way. We've allowed this to truly grow organically for the most part. We've had some advertising and pushes here and there that, that nowhere near compare to the word of mouth and you guys in the audience sharing the episodes, giving them good reviews, supporting the entrepreneurs that are on here and giving their stories or sharing their stories with individuals out there in the food space or people wanting humans wanting to be food entrepreneurs that's how we make difference that's how we make impact through this episode and that's the whole point of this show is to help grow the world of food entrepreneurs because there's more of us out there in the world than we think and there's more of us in the entrepreneurial space than any other entrepreneur space and there's more of us in the food business than any other businesses in the world from the farms to the restaurants to the packaged goods in the grocery stores so i'm just going to leave everyone with that i probably blew everyone's mind a little bit because now everyone's calculating the numbers what is he telling you the truth i'm telling you the truth and so um thank you guys you can find me and this show on instagram at just the food entrepreneurs if you want to be on the show you can reach out to me personally or uh on instagram uh we definitely bring on guests that way i you know we set it up over there i deal with instagram too i don't i rarely use email anymore just because everything is done so fast-paced in today's age and instagram is a way to keep things moving and keep things flowing versus typing out a long email and waiting for a response so just saying again thank you guys you can find us on spotify or wherever else you grow yourself through podcasts you can find all of our shows on there just type in my last name b-i-double-z-a-double-r-o and all four of our shows will pop up there especially as we're relaunching some figuring out some marketing and copywriting issues here and there as that as business goes so i appreciate it again guys and we're out